Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to TheAnalysis.News. I'll be back in just a few seconds. We're going to talk about the bizarre billionaire that made Donald Trump president and what he's up to recently. That's the story of Robert and his daughter, Rebecca Mercer. Uh, Don't forget the donate button and the subscribe button and the share button. All the buttons. Those of you that follow the analysis.news have probably heard me talk about the importance of the digital computer revolution, that it really transformed the economy of the world. And of course, it made globalization on steroids. Uh, So the global supply chain, which had always existed, certainly, I mean, always meaning throughout the 20th century, uh, took an enormous leap with digitization so that you could have a tube of toothpaste come off a Walmart shelf or something gets sold off Amazon and there's a factory in China somewhere that knows to make a new tube of toothpaste. Uh, This had a great effect uh, in many ways, one of which obviously it undermined the uh, bargaining power of labor in the United States, Canada, to some extent Europe. Uh, In the U.S., it helped, it was certainly one of the factors that led to the weakening of unions, the threat to move uh, companies overseas or to Mexico or simply close down and move the production to China. Uh, But there was another effect of digitization and globalization. And this was explained to me by a guy who was a stockbroker and uh, involved in some of the early hedge funds in the the 1980s. And he said to me he had begun uh, life as a broker in the 1960s. And he, uh, we were talking about what computerization had done. And he said, well, imagine what it had did, did on the stock market. And it, it, can you imagine, he says to me, running a hedge fund or doing something like quantita- quantitative trading, high-speed trading, with a pencil and paper? Well, it's not a magic. It can't be done. A lot of what takes place now on Wall Street is only possible because of algorithms, computerization. And one of the most perverse products of all this is high-speed quantitative trading, where algorithms are created sometimes by hundreds and hundreds of some of the world's leading mathematicians, physicists, and such working at a place like Renaissance Technologies, which is one of the most successful of the quantitative traders. And they make these sometimes minuscule trades all day long, sometimes more than minuscule, all based on these very sophisticated algorithms that manipulate the stock market. Well, one of the other things that came out of all of this is a whole brand new batch of billionaires. Uh, there's always been a lot of multimillionaires, and there's were, you know, recently more billionaires, and now there's a lot more billionaires, and they always certainly donated to uh, political campaigns and had enormous clout in the shaping of American politics. But there's always been, and now there's more, what one could call activist billionaires who don't just donate some money to a campaign. They really weigh in and get involved in, in, in how they fund things, who they fund, and trying to actually determine the outcome of state legislatures, governors, and of course, most importantly, who's gonna be president. And one of the more perverse outcomes or people to come out of this whole process, some people call financialization, which is the process by which the big banks have essentially taken over most of the economy and turned most of what happens into simply a matter of speculation now. And, and if you look at the uh, uh, stock market, the S&P 500, the largest clout, the, the largest owners of almost everything now are either asset management companies, big uh, investment banks, and these speculators, high-speed speculators. One of the most perverse outcomes of this process of financialization is someone like Robert Mercer. Robert Mercer Uh, was co-CEO of a company called Renaissance Technologies, which was wildly successful at figuring out how to juice the markets. Uh, His daughter is now his protege when it comes to political involvement. Um, They created something called the Medallion Fund, which was only open 
to uh, employees of Renaissance Technologies, former and past. Uh, in the last year, apparently, their uh, results were up 76% on investment. They made 76%. Uh, now, George Soros, on his best day, is happy to make 20%. Uh, well, this medallion fund also helps to finance the foundation of the Mercers, who give all kinds of money to the far right. Uh, some of the money that Mercers have given in the past went to people like John Bolton, uh, the insane uh, former national security advisor to Donald Trump, who, who never saw a possible war he didn't want to engage in. At any rate, uh, to, to delve more into the role of the Mercer family, because they are still very much on the scene, uh, is Steve O'Keefe. He's written a recent piece in Counterpunch, uh, which I found quite interesting, and I wanted to share with you and, and talk to Steve. So Steve is the author of several books. His most recent is the Set the Page on Fire, Secrets of Successful Writers, based on interviews with over 250 writers and publishers. During the 90s, he was an editor, editor for the counterculture bookseller Lupinix Unlimited. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, a self-proclaimed publisher of the world's most controversial and unusual books, but he's a serious writer. He's done freelance writing for publications like Harper's, Wired, Internet World, The Whole Earth, Outside, and Salon. He recently wrote a column. He writes a column for a counterpunch called Fecalnomics. <laughs> That's that's funny, and he's written a recent piece on on the Mercers. Thanks for joining me, Steve. Yeah, thanks. It's my pleasure, Paul. So, uh, so I, I think it's important, although we don't need to go too much more into it. But that Mercer is a symptom of what's happening to uh, American capitalism in a very right. increasingly degenerate stage of it. And, and Mercer wasn't the only one that made Trump president. Just quickly, Trump, after the Republican convention and this thing about touching somebody's private parts and the tape that came out, it looked like his campaign was going to go down the toilet. The That's right. big donors didn't want anything to do with them. And then Mercer jumped in. And the other parasite that jumped in is Sheldon Adelson. You know, somebody's right. out of casinos. So maybe pick up the story about, you know, the role of the Mercers here and then we'll kind of bring up more, bring it more up to date. Yeah, well, as you know, Mercer is an odd, odd bird, and he's not a very public person. You don't; you, it's hard to find any speeches that he's made or any uh, public uh, pronouncements. He doesn't issue news releases, for example. Uh, but there's one thing that he can't stand, and that's to be taxed. Uh, and there's something wrong. Like uh, I, I have a book over my shoulder here, Dark Money. And, uh, you know, it chronicles a number of these billionaires who are just like, they're just fanatic. They're odd, odd people. And they're doing things for odd reasons that don't even make sense, you know, <laughs> when you think about who they are. Like, would you think a guy like Mercer, who's a scientist and a quant, you know, would be involved in an anti Quant meaning quantitative trader. That's right. Yeah. Would he be involved in an anti-vax movement? And yet, at the, the moment that they saw that being anti-vaccine would be another way to slow down the machine. I mean, everything they're doing is just to slow down the other side. And, uh, and so funding anti-vax movement, would I would never associate somebody like Mercer or Cope with that. But they don't mind. You know, when they were, they were stopped the shutdown in Wisconsin, when uh, the... Uh, uh, coronavirus when they f were first shutting down and they were they showed up at the courthouse with signs already made. I mean, this is a very typical dark money, uh, Charles Koch type of an operation. And, uh, you know, to have these billionaires, they'll do anything to stop a fine or to stop a tax. Now, Hillary Clinton was proposing a, a rapid trading tax uh, prior to the 2016 election. And that's what set Mercer against her. He wanted to tax exactly the kind of quantitative trades that they're making where you hold securities for less than a day. Uh, and then uh, also John McCain wanted to tax uh, high-speed trading. He also had money flooded against him 
by Mercer in, uh, in his election campaign in Arizona before he passed away. And uh, Mercer, no surprise, has poured tons of money into Republicans uh, for Senate in Arizona. For some reason, he's just fixated on that seat. Um, so, um, so is he going to be there this year? You bet. <laughs> he's, he's, he has not gone away. And uh, so uh, look, at, look at Renaissance. Talk about that $7 billion fine. Yeah, look at Renaissance. In 2015, they're facing a $6.8 billion tax bill that they refuse to pay. Uh, and so uh, it would be natural to try to do whatever you can. I mean, I would spend a few tens of millions of dollars if I, oh, if I could get out of a $6.8 billion uh, tax debt. So uh, they did put money into Trump's campaign. Uh, he won. They, they, he put a friend of his in as uh, IRS commissioner, a guy named Reddick, who owns Trump uh, properties in Hawaii. So this is Trump. You know, he, he goes down to who's ever bought, you know, a list. Who's ever bought this thing from me? Let's make him secretary or whatever, you know, or commissioner of who knows what. And uh, so they never pressed this fine against, uh, or not, not even a fine, that's taxes owed against Renaissance the entire time Trump was president. Uh, within days of Biden's inauguration, they cut a deal uh, with the IRS on, uh, on the, the loan. So I imagine Trump's guy was still in there. When they cut but the, the deal. But, the, but the deal, if I understand it correctly, was to pay the original tax bill, not interest, That's not right. penalty. Like who gets a deal of the amount that you owe with no interest or six, penalties? Six years later. And if you're making of 60, you're making 60, 70 percent on your money. Eh, who If you postponed it for six years, you probably made enough to pay the bill. It's it's outrageous. And, you know, we're we're down here citizens, you know, we think our vote counts and we take it very seriously who we're going to vote for and who we're going to, you know, cast our one uh, ability to say something to the man. <laughs> and some guy comes in at the end with $10 million and says, here, do what I say instead, you know. And so the voters, you see it now in the, in the politics in the United States, the voters don't stand a chance. Uh, they can't get Mansion or Cinema to uh, bend on on uh, this uh, Build Back Better plan, and uh, they also can't get voting rights passed. And Republicans are great because we'll just disenfranchise the hell out of everybody since it's okay. And there's no reason to believe if they did get voting rights passed that this new Supreme Court would would find it constitutional. I mean, a better Supreme Court found it unconstitutional a few years ago. So what chance is there uh, that the final judicial review of that voting rights legislation is not going to just smack it right back down again and let the states do whatever they want? There's one thing I think I'd add to the Mercer story um, is I think he's actually more dangerous than someone that didn't want to pay taxes. Uh, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, I th to all indications, are true believers. They really are Christian nationalists. Uh, they are, in the same way Hitler believed in metaphysics, these guys believe in Christian nationalist metaphysics. And if you look at who they funded over the years, and the reason I know, you know, I, I, I exec produced a documentary about the Mercers a few mm -hmm. years ago. They, they would fund the, the most far-right Christian evangelical type of outfits and right-wing politics. For example, in, when they really poured money into Trump, uh, they funded John Bolton's super PAC. Uh, yeah. So they, they were into this Bolton-esque right. vision of American uh, power and use of military power. That's um, right. Also, most importantly, really, in terms of the Trump presidency, uh, Mercer owned Breitbart, or was the biggest investor right. at any rate, in Breitbart mm -hmm. News. And he not only, first of all, supported Ted Cruz. Uh, right. Unfortunately for them, Ted Cruz is, looks far too much like a corpse to ever win uh, a nomination of anything. And that was because that was the Coke 
networks man in the race was Ted Cruz. Oh, is that right? That, yeah, that's, that's, well, that's an interesting Mercer relationship went. on its own, the Mercers to the Cokes, because yeah. sometimes they go with Coke, and, and right. sometimes they're further right than the Cokes That's are. right. That's correct. <laughs> and then when Trump wins the presidency, uh, he doesn't just give money to fuel the Trump campaign. He gives them Steve Bannon, who ran Breitbart. He gives Kellyanne Conway. Uh, he gives him the leadership to actually run the campaign. And then most importantly, and maybe you can talk a bit about this, he gives them Cambridge Analytica, which, which has taken all, everything they've learned from the algorithms that juice the stock market, which essentially, if I understand it correctly, is, is they take every single piece of data, every dollar of sales, every piece of news, for essentially since the company was founded, it could go back to the beginning of the 20th century. And their algorithms churn that together with modern day data about what's expected of the stock. And, the, and that's why they have such sophisticated mathematical brains. Well, Cambridge figures out how to do that with the electoral process, down to being able to figure out an individual's voting and political preferences. Yeah, but Paul, I think you're actually giving them uh, too much credit because it turns out that it isn't necessarily the math that yields the 76% return. It's the source of the data, that they're willing to buy data on a dark market uh, without <laughs> and use that data and the advantages that that data gives them. I don't think it's the result of them having so much data that they're able to crunch uh, with amazing accuracy how people are going to uh, make decisions. I think they, they are cheating. And I, I believe when you look at it, they're cheating. <laughs> well, if they're, if they're cheating, but they're, really, but they're really good at it because they all have to be cheating. There's no reason the, all the other quantitative guys. And the Cambridge Analytica story is a story of cheating. They, they went, they developed this. But, but yeah, let me just, okay. just one thing. But, but they got to be good at that because all of them have to be cheating. And, and that medallion fund's way ahead of everybody everybody else. <laughs> yeah. So they're good at cheating. That's right. They are very good at cheating and they have been for a long time. And really that in a lot of ways, that has been the quantitative model for a long time. Stephen Cohen, who I believe is on the list of the 10 billionaires whose wealth doubled as Oxfam recently reported out that there are 10, uh, the 10 richest people, uh, that if they uh, had a 99% tax uh, it would, on just their profits for the last, since the pandemic started, that it would be enough to alleviate poverty in the world right now. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, Stephen A. Cohen is on that list, SAC, uh, SAC Capital. Uh, back uh, um, when I was coming up, uh, SAC Capital was always in the news in the Wall Street Journal for uh, they they were closing closing in on him for insider trading, and and he earned his high returns by basically paying people to who would go sit in a cafeteria or go to the same church as an employee of some company and get next to them and talk to them and then offer them ten grand for you know just uh, minutes of the of board meetings or something like that. And uh, so all the people underneath Stephen Cohen ended up getting uh, convicted, like Raj Rajamaratnam. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that guy's name. Raj, he was an Indian named Raj Rajamaratan, I believe. And he was convicted as he was an associate of Stephen Cohen's. Well, now Stephen Cohen owns the Mets. Uh, he's got again one of these sophisticated trading businesses. Well, let's, believe, let's go back to Cam go back yeah. to Cambridge. Tell tell people yeah. what Cambridge did and so and uh, Cambridge uh, they developed a personality and that was owned quiz. by primarily the primary ownership was uh, Mercer, but Steve Bannon had a big piece of it. Yeah, too. at that time uh, Cambridge came out of a company called SCL Group. And SCL Group, I believe, has associations with Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, and even at that time, and uh, Eric Prince. But Cambridge did not have that association. 
And, uh, and Mercer was a funder of SCL Group. Uh, and so out of that comes this Cambridge Analytica, and then the way they picked the name was just ridiculous, as you can imagine. They looking for some snobby name. <laughs> well, I heard how they picked the name. It was it was a yeah. guy, one of the mathematicians uh, that was in on developing some of the early uh, algorithms uh, was uh, was from Cambridge, and they said, "Oh, oh that's going to make it look legitimate. Let's call yeah. it Cambridge." So they developed the personality quiz. Uh, for people to play on Facebook to see what type you are, what type of person you are. And people on Facebook shared this quiz and it became very popular, but not enormously popular. It got shared like a, a few hundred thousand times. But through those few hundred thousand shares, they figured that they could reach through to the friends of every person who took the test. So if I had taken the test, the personality quiz, then they would have they would gain access to all of my friends' profiles. And so through this, you know, exponential access, they were able to download 78 million Facebook profiles. And then that information was used uh, during Brexit to target messages about uh, another of Mercer's uh, investments. And I... I'm Just to pay, to if people it. wanted, there's a great, there's a very good movie on Netflix about Brexit. It might be called Brexit, and it actually tells the story uh, how 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 Cambridge accomplished this and, and really w helped sway the Brexit vote. Yes. So please look at my article on Counterpunch. Look at this uh, uh, documentary on Netflix, and uh, look at some of Paul Jay's earlier uh, work uh, here. Go on, go on with the Cambridge story. Go on with <laughs> yeah. how, how they use this data from Facebook. All right. So then that data is used to create basically psychographic profiles of voters. So what happened uh, during Brexit? That was used in creating messaging, uh, and I. I, again, I can't remember the details of the specific messages that they came up with that they thought would persuade voters and the way that they got those messages to them. But I do know that when the Trump campaign won the Republican nomination, that Mercer had merged that database with the Republican National Party's voter database. Those two databases were merged by Trump. And the owner of that giant friggin' database became not the Republican Party, but Trump. The Trump campaign owns that, that database, which is a merger of the 78 million purloined Facebook profiles that Mercer had, plus the 200 some million voter profiles that the RNC had. So when the RNC merged their database with Trump, when he won, he got the tickets. He got the keys to the database that they had, and he had Mercer on the other side merging the two. A lot of people think that that famous uh, server in Lettuce that was sending mysterious messages back and forth uh, to a bank in Moscow or something like that. I, I don't know if you remember this uh, um it came up during the Mueller thing about a server in, in uh, Lettuce, New York, I think it is, that was uh, showing continuous suspicious activity like backing up a database. And um, so it's believed that this augmented database is now not only owned by Trump, but also owned by Vladimir. Well, Vladimir maybe, Putin. maybe not. I, I want to yeah. be careful on that because that's very in very speculative territory no, where the but Cambridge the, uh, stuff but isn't. The, the, that these databases were merged is not speculative. No, 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 no. That, I mean that it's that under the RNC. That the Russian no longer, government has that list. The RNC no longer has. They don't have. No, 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 no. I'm only talking yeah. that whether the Russians have that list oh, yes. or not. That is that's speculative. quite speculative about whether yeah. the Russians have that that complete list. But, but, but I is, always thought it, it was just let me add a point. I always mm -hmm. thought it was very interesting that all the attention of the Democratic Party and and the Mueller investigation was all about the Russians when the real right. story was Cambridge Analytica, which oh. was actually also a foreign company because it's so incorporated in England. <laughs> yes. And supposedly uh, had worked uh, with uh, Putin on the disinformation in the Russia campaign. I mean, Maybe. in the uh, Brexit campaign. 
I'm going to so, keep saying maybe because I I've maybe, yet to see right. any real. But proof. I don't oh. think uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Ro Robert Mercer are unknown to each other. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, so maybe anyway, I, I, I don't. Uh, I assume so. But what but, they but, did but with that he is, in the but, U.S. But, election, but he's putting. But Mercer is putting put serious money into John Bolton. Uh, he was allied with the Koch brothers uh, in various ways, but but. Uh, did support a very hawkish foreign policy, which was also directed at the Russians. I mean, Bolton is no pal of the Russians. So it's complicated. I just don't want to sound like there's some definitive information here. We don't know. Yes, it is. On, on the Russians. Right. It is complicated with the Russians. I agree. And I think that what, uh, Bol what uh, Mercer is into now through Emmer data, which he is a partner in, is more similar to what Russia is doing with its Wagner groups uh, of uh, various uh, mercenaries traveling around. But we can, we can work our way up to that <laughs> if you want. Uh, well, I'm sure from, from what Cambridge did, I would expect every larger country in the world is trying to replicate for their own interest. Uh, you know, once oh, it's absolutely. known how to do it, I mean, they're all uh, doing it. So yeah, just and, like what the Houthis did to Saudi Arabia, every little every little country is trying to figure out how to get these drones to go attack somebody's oil depots. You all know? right, let, let's go back to this. So so they merged so, the yes, list. This and is what they asymmetric do information warfare, and what they okay, did what they was do? they took this information and they used it to find out where uh, known Trump supporters who they were next to, who they worked with, and who they lived near that could be persuaded to vote for Trump. And so they literally targeted people based on whether their Facebook connections had were connected in Facebook to someone who liked Trump. They would try to literally get these people to pass messages through so they could bypass folks' filters. And, uh, and receive these messages in support of Trump. It was, uh, it also guided, I, you know, I've never believed the, uh, rhetoric around the, uh, social media being the thing that threw this campaign, uh, the 2016 campaign. Uh, no, social media was used to deliver a lot of messages, but I really don't see that, uh, the actions of the social media moguls really had any impact one way or another people just well uh, it, it, i think it it ties more in terms of what you were saying and i remember at the time uh jared cook i can't even get his last name kushner, kushner yeah. was kushner was bragging in a bit our big article i think maybe in time magazine mm -hmm. how they how the democrats spent all their money on television and how useless that was and right. we spent all our money on facebook he didn't Talk about what Cambridge, right. why they spend so much money on Facebook. Right. But they were able, if I under, understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, they were able to micro-target all these individuals with ads that were designed for that person. That's correct. They were practically custom-designed one, one person at a time. <laughs> it was almost amazing. And this was only possible because of Mercer's Cambridge Analytica. Now, he had some kind of a falling out with Trump. I don't know where they are uh, today, but he just put a ton of money into Trump's reelection uh, pack. So uh, I think uh, that's being reported. So yeah, there whatever was some problems they was, had. Yeah, there was. I, I've read two accounts of that. One is mm -hmm. uh, he started getting so much attention, Mercer and Rebecca, because of their role in 2016. They didn't like all the heat. They didn't want yeah. to be so much in the public eye, so they they yeah. they pushed back. Uh, there's also some talk that they just thought Trump was getting too erratic, uh, right. which is kind of hard to understand given how erratic <laughs> Robert and Rebecca Mercer are. But maybe there's a there's a broader, deeper story here, um, which is is the this rise of this Christian nationalist quasi fascist movement that. Trump is a vehicle for, right? Uh, but with or without Trump, uh, the real backbone uh, of this movement are the the billionaires and multimillionaires who believe uh, either like the Koch brothers do, which is uh, American workers should be as close to outright slaves as as they can be, uh, in terms of labor law breaking mm -hmm. unions. Yeah. 
or like the Mercers. And I don't think the Koch brothers are so uh, zealot, are such zealots in terms of the religious fanaticism. But there's a lot of multimillionaires well, and billionaires who are. I think you're not right are. about that. I think you're wrong about that because Charles Koch is. Uh, oh, maybe Christian he is. I mean, is he or he finances David Koch, David Koch is not, but David Koch is gone. He's been gone for a while. So there's no Koch brothers anymore. It's just right. Charles. And he is much more conservative. He is much more right wing and uh, Christian than uh, David was. Ever right. was. And uh, yeah, D so David did some interesting stuff like David teamed up with George Soros. Uh, to fund this uh, foreign policy institute that's yeah. quite critical of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, he's a, he's not a bad guy. I've met him once, uh, well, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, he's he's very likable. And uh, but his brother Charles is bad news. <laughs> so for anyone seeing this, don't don't fall for the grandfatherly uh, PR crusade that Charles Koch has been on to try to clean up his uh, reputation the past couple of years. He's sprinkling money here and there on uh, on uh, left wing media to try to burnish his reputation. But behind the scenes, he is still funding things like Stop the Steal, and he's still funding things like anti-vax, and uh, he is still funding some of the craziest people in uh, the House of Representatives in the United States. And Mike Pompeo is a uh, is a big Charles Koch guy. <laughs> So uh, I don't I think he is as right wing as any of the other ones. And I think this is the problem. So, so in terms of what the Koch brothers, uh, as you said, it ain't brothers anymore. I'm just so used to saying that. Uh, but as Charles Koch, uh, which is uh, who is further to the right and more on the same page as Robert Mercer, you're saying, um, and, and what happened after January 6th and, and, you know, a lot of people talking about that there's a, a, a real rising and, and, and fairly well financed and organized network uh, that's planning for the uh, some kind of disruptions if ch by chance the Republicans lose in 2022, which is looking like they will, in fact, do significantly well, but particularly for 2024. Uh, a much more organized and coherent plan that if if it is Trump and he loses. So what what are these guys up to and how big is this funding network? What, what kind of power do they have? <laughs> well, uh, the power keeps concentrating as the wealth keeps concentrating. And so uh, as the concentration of wealth has put more and more enormous sums into the hands of such a few people, those few people are able to do an incredible amount of damage uh, with just one person supporting their point of view. Uh, so what they what they do and what what they're doing now is they're funding uh, resistance to the Build Back Better plan and resistance to breaking the filibuster in the Senate. Now, if you look at the way the United States is set up, the Senate is not a democratic body. They don't often say that, but it is not a democratic body. There's two senators per state. And if you have uh, 50 million people in your state or 50,000, it's uh, it's the same two, two votes you get. So A, it is not a democratic body. Uh, B, it has the 60 vote uh, threshold to, to stop debate, the so-called filibuster. And so when you put the math of the states together, the undemocratic states with the undemocratic filibuster, you allow 11%. Representative senators representing 11% of the population are able to wag the dog. They are able to control what the other 89% of the people can do. And this is why you can get legislation that is stopped that has even 80% popularity in the United States, such as uh, um, assault weapons uh, restrictions. Now, even Obama thought he could get that through, and he could not get that through. It's just amazing. Even something that 90% of the people, Americans, uh, agree on cannot get past this filibuster. And uh, uh, the reason is these dark money people know the game, and they target the representatives from the states uh, that have small population. <laughs> 
So and it, it doesn't take nearly as much money to sway a small yeah. state as a big state. And with the Supreme Court now just locked up with conservatives, uh, uh, the Senate is uh, their their next uh, the only place left that they can stand that's not Democratic. So and the vote for president is supposedly Democratic unless it goes into the Electoral College, in which case it instantly well it does go into the Electoral College. Yes, yeah. it does, mm-hmm. and uh, so. And and that is an undemocratic body because it's based on the same math as the Senate, you know, a two two per state. Now, if if you look at what all this big money is rolling up to, what are they going to do? They're doing a constitutional convention, the Convention of States. I don't know if you've heard of it or done a program on it yet. But no, I haven't done a program on it. I've heard of it. Of states is being funded by Charles Koch. Uh, primarily, and dark money uh, groups associated with Charles Koch. And what they want is they want to sort of trick Americans into having a constitutional convention where they then rewrite the Constitution to protect corporations. And so uh, the trick is they're going to try to get it on... uh, call a constitutional convention for the purpose of a balanced budget amendment. And so they're just waiting for the right fiscal crisis to come along. And then the balanced budget amendment, they're going to get 34 states to agree to have this convention. They've got 31 now, if you believe their math. They have 31 that are willing to have this convention today. And they need 34 in order to have call a constitutional convention. And, and what would a balanced it, what would a balanced budget amendment mean for people? Well, the thing is, once you have the constitutional convention, it's not limited to the balanced budget amendment. There's no way to have a single issue constitutional convention. And at that point, they want to make abortion illegal inside the framework of the United States Constitution, among other changes that they're they're seeking to the Constitution. They also have a plan to make it so that it takes an 80% of the states to alter the Constitution. So in other words, they only want 34 states to have the convention, but they want 80% of the states required to change what the convention comes up with. And this is the kicker. In a constitutional convention, every state only gets one vote. That's one vote per state. They only need 26 states in a constitutional convention to agree with them uh, to pass a new constitution. And also they only need 26 states to uh, uh, scrap the convention being only about the balanced budget and to add other items to the agenda of the convention. Uh, So you're going to see corporations trying to lock up uh, their privileged position in a new constitution written by dark money. And this is not, you know, it's not a fantasy. Uh, what surprises me is the, the bedfellows that they're willing to get in bed with in order to get this deal done. And it's, you know, Charles Koch really hates Donald Trump. And there was a big split, you know, he, he finally came in on money-wise. He put money in. He, he put money in so that he could get his guys in charge of energy and environment so he could get Pompeo, Pompeo in and uh, so he could get Rick Perry in and, uh, and uh, some of these other fellows that the Cokes have think, been grooming. I, I, I think it's not just about uh, corporate power in the sense that I don't know how much exactly more corporate power corporations need. I, I, I think there really is a, an ideological cultural component here that a lot of these guys are true believers in a, a Christian theocratic authoritarian state. It's not just about the money. I think you're right. And I don't know what's going to come behind that because part of this, the you know, the abortion is part of this as well. And there is behind that, uh, like you'll see Steve Bannon now repeatedly refer to uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian 
uh, so they're apparently they want to make it clear that they include Jews, but they don't include Islam. <laughs> so you'll hear them say Judeo-Christian all the time. And I think uh, a lot of the uh, the dark money people are they just assume skip the Judeo part and uh, have it be uh, all Christian. And uh, and you look, and well, they, they need the, they need the Jewish part for the apocalypse. They, it's part of yeah, the narrative. That's right. <laughs> There's a of course, lot all the of, Jews are going to go to hell, but they, they need the Jewish part. It just shows uh, Dark Money has a really uh, the book Dark Money by by Jane Mayer. I should give her credit because she really has been one of the earliest ones on this. And there was one of these nut job billionaires that was always funding anti-Hillary Clinton stuff, anti-Bill Clinton stuff, anti-Hillary Clinton stuff. And Hillary finally had a meeting with the guy. They sat down and he turned out to really not have anything against her that much. And he stopped spending money on her after that meeting. You know, it was just something to do. I, You know, these people are not well psychologically. I don't think you can rise to the top of the corporate uh, system without having character flaws that are uh, just blind you to <laughs> uh to what normal what people think are normal is normal there's behavior some there's some serious fracture lines though in the elite corporate world uh clearly most of the elites wanted trump gone after he wasn't going to peacefully transition yeah uh, i've made this point many times but uh, one oh, of the yeah, things i think that doesn't get enough attention is that at 2.10 in the afternoon when the doors of Capitol Hill are breached, at, th at 3.04 in the afternoon, the Association of American Manufacturers issued a press release calling on Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Trump. Now, that doesn't happen an hour after doors That's get right. breached. In other words, this was all part of a plan that this guy's gone nuts. He did what we right. wanted for four years, and now he's out of his mind. And Biden ain't so bad anyway. It's not like he's going to hurt the corporations all that much. Right. Uh, so, so they wanted to get rid of him uh, then. Uh, but there's another fracture line, which I think is, is fascinating. Uh, the, the, this is the split between uh, the Trumpist forces and the, what the Cheney forces represent. The, the face of it, of course, is Liz Cheney. Yeah. But when the 10 former secretaries of defense... Uh, uh, published their letter on January 4th in the Washington Post calling on the military to stay out of the elections, uh, a clearly a sign saying to the Trumpist attempted coup, you military better stay out of this. Yeah. That letter was organized by uh, Liz and her dad. And and that that's the Cheneys as really representing yeah. the far hard right and 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 further of corporate America. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, I did a piece called the hard right versus the far right. Um, you know, there is a, there is a struggle there for leadership yes. of this right wing movement. It's not like Dick Cheney has anything against yeah. authoritarian leadership. He was, he was all for the Imperial presidency. Right. I don't think he gives a shit about liberal democratic institutions, Yeah. but what do you make? There, there is a real split there. Yeah, well, the global corporate stuff, uh, they're not in, in cahoots with this, uh, you know, uh, insurrection business. And it's because they want a smooth operating system. So, for example, Charles Koch is adamantly pro-immigration. He wants as many workers coming flooding across that border and reducing labor costs in the United States as possible. And he believes in it in a philosophical way, too. He believes that people should be allowed to move to uh, freely around the world to places of their choice. And uh, so but, you know, that that position is absolutely hated by, uh, by much of the right who, who uh, you know, they've demonized immigrants so much and immigration so much. You know, they they certainly don't agree that we should have open borders like the corporations do. But the corporations do want open borders, especially the ones run by these uh, billionaire uh, oligarchs, because that's the only way they get cheap labor is to have... Uh, you know, open borders. Otherwise, you know, they got, you know, if you, if you don't let us move the factory to China, 
then you have to let us move the Chinese to the U.S. so they can work at the factory here. <laughs> and so this yeah. is exactly what's going on with deportation now to Mexico. A lot of people are being deported to Mexico and then taking jobs there, working for the same corporations that they just got, that they just left, only now at a substantially lower wage. So there is, there's a just a definite, uh, you look at people, they work in a call center in uh, San Diego, and they get paid twice or three times as much as they get in a call center in Tijuana. And if you get deported, that's about the only job you can get down there. There's a documentary on it on uh, Al Jazeera this week about uh, deportees. And, uh, and, and then there's got to be a, a, another obvious massive split, which and, and maybe I think to some extent this is the underlying issue that's really facing the American elites. And that's what to do with the climate crisis. Uh, it, it's, an, it's an existential threat. There's certainly, uh, the smart money understands this now, how serious the threat right. is. Um, but there's a real division about what to do about it. The, clearly, there's not gonna be effective climate policy without real government inter intervention, regulation, even to the point of some kinds of nationalization and, and right. public ownership. Correct. Um, now, all the elites hate all of that. On yep. the other hand, some of them realize there really is a problem and that government is going to have to at least regulate to some extent. The other side of this is, is fossil fuel, and which is the Cokes, and, and to some yeah. extent, uh, private equity. And they just want to continue the denial. They just, there's no way they want any serious legislation regulating fossil fuel, at least for 20, 25 years, if ever. Right. And, and if they have to go to this kind of authoritarian, Christian, nationalist stuff, which I think many of them also, also believe in. It's not right. just a Machiavellian scheme, which it also is. But there's a real split. And obviously, the Koch brothers have been financing anti-climate science for years. Right. And they are climate deniers, <laughs> and they also don't support a minimum wage. I wonder if uh, if all the people uh, in Trump's group know that they're anti-minimum wage. Uh, they're certainly anti-labor laws. They've spent the whole the whole uh, history of the Koch brothers has been mostly anti-labor, and of course they they are enormously involved in the petrochemical business and fuels and nitrogen fertilizer, and uh, so in fact. Uh, they've gone from being a company that makes those things to being a company that trades those things. And, uh, and so when you see electricity prices in Texas going through the roof, it's because the Koch brothers knew this was coming, bought up all the supply, and then sold it back to them you know, at these ridiculous prices. And the book Cokeland is full of example after example of how the Coke industries became a trading company that that gets by on shortages. It creates shortages and then it profits from them. And uh, so all this thing about being great mathematicians, no, a lot of it comes down to them cheating. <laughs> so uh, I don't believe the great math stuff. I don't believe it's these super AIs doing all of it. I believe that there's a lot of old fashioned cheating going on in the background. Well, you may be right. I mean, the people I've talked to think it's both because uh, they all cheat and then yeah. some are better at it than others and some are better at the algorithms. I mean, certainly there's a lot of this driven by algorithms, even when you get right. the data that you've stolen, even if you've, right. you still got <laughs> to put it into the, to get the data. You do have to. Yeah, put you it still got to shove it fun. in the AI machine yeah. and maybe some AIs are better. Than now, the, yeah. the, the results from the medallion fund are ridiculous. Seventy six percent. That's so, better than the rest of Renaissance does, too. So there's something f fishy going on there because most people can't even get into this uh, Mercer yeah. medallion. It's impossible. Fund. It's, uh, it's closed, as they say. So uh, I have a question for you. Do you think, Paul, that the United States is capable of reforming or if it's going to take an international body to get us to finally stop using so much carbon or uh, to rein in our corporations? Well, there's never, there is no such international body. So I think that's not even on the table. There is no international body that would ever 
can tell the United States what to do within any time frame that matters. Maybe in 300 years, there'll be something like that. <laughs> uh, the only international body that could do that would be aliens coming down in spaceships saying, we're going to blow you all up if you don't do something about climate change. So, but so far, that ain't happening. No, I, I think there's a best case scenario, which is a little pie in the sky, unfortunately. But I do think there are sections of the elites in the financial sector. Uh, the most obvious one is Larry Fink from BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager. I think they're up to, I think in the one company now, I think is yeah. $12 trillion right. under management. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's insane. The top yes. three asset managers have more money under their management than the GDP of China. Yeah. Uh, it's insane, the, the, the clout they have. And they call themselves passive, but it's bullshit. Right. They, they, they actually, even though they, it's not all their money, they, it's uh, billionaires' money, it's pension fund money, it's sovereign wealth fund money, but all that money, and then they go and buy these whole stock indexes, they get to vote the shares. So yeah, when there's votes right. for the board, so you know if management's doing what they want, they don't have to get involved. They can be very passive. But if right. but but if you look at the history of shareholder resolutions, particularly on climate issues, BlackRock has been very involved in, over the years mm -hmm. in defeating many resolutions that would have pushed some companies into a better climate green. A policy to some extent anyway. But but Larry Fink, if you read the documents of BlackRock and others, they're very aware now that this threat really is existential. And, and the, as I said earlier, the problem is that to do something about it is going to require a kind of government regulation that these guys in principle hate. But maybe they'll start to get, it's either that, or like just imagine if by 2030, 2035, we hit 1.5 degrees warming. And let's understand that the, at right now we're only at 1.2 and we're already having many extreme weather events. So imagine 10, 15 years, we're already at 1.5, which is what they're yeah. saying is very possible, very likely could hit two degrees by 2050 or so. Millions and millions, tens of millions of people from the South have nowhere to go but North. Right. So then what? You know, they think they got issues on their border now. Uh, it's yeah. beyond belief. Uh, whole, whole countries We're all coming to Canada, going... Paul. <laughs> we're well, all coming we're, to Canada. I, 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 there's only one problem with that. We yeah. have a secret plan to build the wall. The oh, real building yeah. of the wall. We're building it. It's the Canadian. <laughs> right. I'm a dual citizen, but here I'm yeah. putting on my Canadian hat. If I had my American hat, I'll be on the other side of the wall. Yeah. I'd like to be on, on, on your side of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of people I'm interviewing, at the end of the interview, they're saying, okay, what does it take to get to Canada? Anyway, some of these elites, and it's, you know, it, it is reflected in the at least the rhetoric of the Biden administration, if not the real policy, and they can't even pass that. And what I mean by that is the real policy was so dependent on carbon capture, which so far is pie in the sky, but at least rhetorically, the Biden administration uh, does get the urgency, which means a lot of their financial backers do get the urgency. There's a lot of new uh, heirs of big, big fortunes who are now getting a lot of money in, in the biggest transfer of wealth from one generation to the right. other in the history of the world, I suppose. Yeah. Um, they, that generation of wealth, many of them are more tuned, get the urgency of the climate. Uh, but none of this will be triggered unless there's a real mass movement that puts enormous pressure uh, from below, from the ground. And there's a lot of people organizing towards that end. Uh, the problem, obviously, is, is that in the end, you have to elect people who will actually pass right. legislation that's effective and not just in appearance uh, but in reality, effective. Right. And the corporate Democrats are terrified of antagonizing the fossil fuel industry any more than they've already antagonized them, which means goes back to Coke money and the people behind right. Joe Manchin in West Virginia and so on and so on. The only way this logjam gets broken 
is with a, a powerful mass movement. So far, it's not there, but maybe as we head closer to 1.5 degrees and people really start to get how urgent and how near this crisis is, uh, hopefully it won't be too late to do something about it. We haven't even curbed uh, our our rate of growth of carbon usage. Uh, our greenhouse gases are still growing. Not they're not even shrinking, uh, uh, much less shrinking at a fast enough rate. And so you, you have to look at that and think, man, one way or another, there's there, we're never going to catch up. Now maybe that's true. When you say when we get closer to one point five and things are more dire, people. Um, make some changes. But right now you have to realize that every gallon of oil that's in the ground is owned by somebody. And so, uh, and it's pledged as collateral or they're used to a certain amount of income from it. And so if you say ban the carbon, ban, uh, let's say you could just ban gasoline engines in the United States in five years. And yeah. we could do that. That could be done in five years. And then you would, you know, there are problems with electric cars. I, I grant that. But you would have no more combustion engines in five years. And then all that oil that's in the ground basically becomes worthless. What I'm getting at is the people who think they they have $50 per barrel of whatever they own under the ground are going to find it all of a sudden turn to $1 per barrel or something. And so uh, those are the people who go nuts like Mercer, and try to buy a presidency to forestall that from happening. And so I see that happening in the future, too, that even if we get close to having something of a reasonable climate policy, some billionaire is going to come in and offer to uh, make their uh, the president's children wealthy beyond their uh, wildest dreams. And all of a sudden, all of our dreams go right out the window. You know. Well, I think we we who think we understand this and want to do something about it, uh, we really got to support the efforts, getting directly involved as we can in organizing in that small number of states you talked about right. that have this ridiculous power in the Senate and in, in the Electoral College. And these legislatures, Republican legislatures, are getting elected in states that used to never elect Republican right. legislatures. Um, and and to, because the corporate Democrats have just written these people off. But when I, I get to talk uh, in one way or another, I get to talk to a lot of people, including people that voted for Trump. And, and the polling uh, bears out what I'm about to say. A lot of them do get climate change as a serious problem, even if they are religious, uh, even if they support Trump on all kinds or Trumpist type policies, because it's not just Trump. It's in some ways, it's even more about Republican legislatures at, at the state right. level. That's right. Um, even though they agree on certain things with those with the Republican Party, and a lot of it is just uh, they just think the Democrats are a failure and so that they go to the next stop. But but a lot of them do get the climate problem, and, and yeah. there's some polling I think by that Pew. Point you made there is important. That a lot of them, they're just they're not Trump supporters necessarily. They're just giving the bird to the whole government. They're sick of all of it, and you know they know kind of no matter who's getting elected, they're not getting what they're what they're hoping for. So uh, I think uh, I I believe half of the Trump vote was just a screw you vote. And uh, we, we like him because he's hated. <laughs> you know, it was a what we call a Bodie McBoatface vote. I don't know if you yeah, know the Bodie McBoatface. I, I know some of that is. Yeah. But I think a lot of the vote are, you know, people of faith. They, you know, there's no reason not to use the term. I think they are, you know, whether you agree or not. Yeah. Um, but what, what do most of that 74, 75 million people want? There's a hardcore yeah. Maybe as much as 20% of that 75 million right. that are really, there's no other word, really fascistic. They yes. really, That's their right. identities are tied up in white supremacism. Uh, they believe in authoritarianism. Uh, they, they believe in threatened. this, you know, the, the church, uh, uh, mm -hmm. a kind of religious domineering church and so on. But I think most of those people of the 75 million, they want, you know, 
a life for their kids. They want a stable home. They want, you know, what they think will be a future. Uh, you know, they, they want some decent values in their life. They see how corrupt the culture is, which to a large extent it is. Um, and, and when I've talked to those people, I hear over and over again a significant number, even though they disagree with so many things I support, Right. They do uh, think there's a real climate crisis. And if right. that was the issue, like in the election in Virginia, if, if the numbers of this Pula study I saw are correct, mm -hmm. if something like 20% of people that identify as uh, seriously conservative Republicans, 20% think the climate crisis is real and of, of one of their issues of high concern, 10% put it at in the top three of their issues. Well, God, if you only got that 10% because you focused on climate, you might wedge off some of those people, but then you've got to have a real climate policy. And, and this is where it, on the ground organizing is the real issue of, to elect some candidates that actually want real effective climate change because so far the corporate Democrats are most, mostly rhetoric. And really, uh, there isn't a good third party option in the United States. Third parties are are terribly prejudiced against uh, in terms of trying to get on the ballot and uh, all across the country. It's a very it's a daunting task. Republicans have tried to make it even more daunting <laughs> with their control of state legislators. They don't want to make it easy for new parties to get on the ballot. So uh, it's really tough to form. Uh, any kind of a uh, get, get any kind of attraction there, like you might have in in Germany, where a Green is now a member of the ruling uh, uh, party in Germany and has a seat at the table. Here, Green never has a seat at the table. Uh, you have to get a Democrat or a Republican to take, like you say, to have a real climate policy and uh, and put it out there. I, I do have to say, the Green Party in Germany ain't what it used to be. Uh, the, the, she's, she's the foreign minister, and I think she's more pro-American than the more centrist parties that she's aligned with. Yeah, but it is, it is a green with a seat at the table, which is different, and, yeah. uh, and certainly not something we have here. Like, you know, we don't have a Ralph Nader's party has never been successful at getting on, uh, uh, getting a member elected to Congress and uh, you know, Bernie has at times said, you know, look, uh, I my my agenda is supported by 80 percent of the people in West Virginia. <laughs> you know, you go put up my agenda there and it's very popular. So well, uh, in, in the in the primary, Sanders won every district in West Virginia. Yeah. So you can see that uh, there's room to have uh, somebody who has a platform that is like just issues that are 80% popular uh, could maybe maybe force their way through in this logjam. But well, I'm going to be I'm going to be interviewing a woman next week uh, who's the co-director of a group called uh, West Virginia Can't Wait. And they're doing this. They're, they're really pushing an, a, a program, not within the framework of any party. And they're supporting yeah. candidates within each, either party, although they wind up being mostly Democrat because of the kind of program it is, but it's not partisan in that way. And they're, they're just doing the, 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 the hard work of knocking right. on doors and going to community meetings and, and right. workplaces. And that's what it's going to take everywhere. And just to end off the interview, because I'm going to end practically every interview I do now with this, not with a, a plea to donate to the analysis. Of course, we'd appreciate it. But, but more importantly, find out who's doing this kind of local organizing in whatever state you're in uh, and support it. Uh, there's, yeah. There are organizers go, organizations and organizers working in unions, in communities all over the country, really mm -hmm. trying to get workers and ordinary people engaged in this kind of progressive agenda. And they don't get any attention at all. There's practically no news media coverage of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where the hope's going to be. You, you got to hope for some kind of fracture in the elites. And there's got to be a, a, a movement that not only consolidates and strengthens a vote for progressives in the big urban centers, 
but also really make some inroads in uh, rural America. And I also think a lot of what you're doing, Paul, in revealing what uh, these groups are doing is important because I know that dark money groups are dark for a reason. They know that when people have heard their agenda, what they really want to do, they don't like it. They're never going to win a popular vote. They know they're never going to win a popular vote. So the only way they can make headway is to be secretive, to be quiet, to fund things that don't look like them. Uh, and uh, and it's you and people like you who are not funded by corporations who are going and revealing these connections that are there. When people see, you know, that the same uh, folks that are, you know, now behind Stop the Steal also want to stop the minimum wage, well, <laughs> they're probably not going to be as thrilled to be funded by by such dark money groups. And yet this is this that's how they operate and that's why they need people like you and not me. Yeah, let, let me just add, I just want to I want thank thank you and let me just emphasize what you just said. It's almost the main point of the agenda is other than they don't want any kind of legislation that phases out fossil fuel. The whole rest of the agenda is to lower wages. Everything else is just uh, you know cover up the agenda workers is lower your wages and weaken your ability to bargain for higher wages that's almost the entire banal stupid agenda and don't fall for them sprinkling a little candy on your favorite issue you know throwing a little money at it to try to make friends with you in the background that's what they're after lowering your wages all right thanks very much for joining me thank you paul it's been a pleasure and thank you for joining me on the analysis.news. Uh, don't forget, we a little donation wouldn't hurt, but I'm quite serious. Find out who's doing some local organizing and uh, give them some money because uh, they're doing very hard and necessary work. And uh, But do subscribe, do share, get on our email list uh, at the analysis.news. Thanks again.